This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Connie Dolan, and I'm one of the faculty for the University of Maryland PhD program, and this is our PhD podcast series. And I'm joined today by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the executive director of the University of Maryland Palliative Care Program. And today we are delighted to have Marion Grant, Dr. Marion Grant, um, with us. Marion is the Senior Regulatory Advisor for the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care, CTAC. Um, she's a consultant for the Center to Advance Palliative Care, and she is part of the University of Washington's Message Lab um, Serious Illness Messaging Project, and she'll be able to tell you more about that. But I think what's so important is um, I know Marion, um, and I think she brings some breadth to our field, um, and as you've heard from some of our speakers, they may have started in a different field before they came to Palliative of care, which is really important to think about um, because Marion um, started her career in marketing in Procter and Gamble. And, and then moved into nursing. Um, and so she has been in critical care. She earned her uh, doctorate of nursing practice and she has been at the University of Maryland uh, Medical Center. She's also been adjunct faculty at the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins Schools of Nursing. Um, and so the other expertise that Marion brings to this is uh, sort of this nursing perspective and this policy perspective is um, in 2014, she was selected as a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy fellow working on Capitol Hill and at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, really important entities um, for both palliative care to have a presence and sort of have a nursing presence. Um, she's also served on the boards of the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association and the Carolinas Center and also has been faculty for the End of Life Nursing Education Consortium. So Marion is very widely known for a number of things. And so Marion, we're excited to have you here today. I am excited to be with you. Sorry, I can't be there in person. <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting how we all fall out about doing this in the future. But I think, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion, um, because I think it's really helpful for our students to understand the different ways that people come into this. Um, so, you know, I I, I was I had a long term career at Procter and Gamble in marketing and media. I worked on uh, most the, my last assignments were on the global CoverGirl and Max Factor cosmetics businesses. I was spending my days trying to uh, introduce a new lipstick technology, a lip color technology, to the world, and I kind of accidentally became a hospice volunteer at an AIDS hospice in the early '90s, and that was a just huge, profound experience. Um, you know, back then everyone died. And yet I was with this group of people regularly who were talking about death and planning funerals. And it was just amazing. And I, I had a midlife crisis, uh, kind of an early midlife crisis. And I didn't leave my husband and I didn't buy a sports car, but I left my corporate job to go to nursing school. And, um, you know, when people asked me about that, I said, I don't think the lipstick thing is going to get me through the pearly gates. You know, I think I need to do something more valuable. And so, I mean, I, I have, it's been a terrific change. I, 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 not everyone could do that or not everyone would want to, but for me, it's been a terrific change. And I've been 
a passionate second career nurse for the past 20 plus years. So, <laughs> so well, you've already told us some fun things, but so tell us something that um, most people in palliative care wouldn't know about you. Oh, no, this is, this is, this is getting tricky. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I have become um, very interested in uh, Buddhist philosophy. Um, the, the whole uh, last year of uncertainty about the political future of this country and, um, you know, the alarming headlines every day, I thought, you know what, I need to, I need to chill out. And so I have become, I'm engaged in a year long course at the Upaya Center in Santa Fe. They do a terrific program called Being with Dying for palliative care clinicians. I did that a few years ago and now it's, it's in a program on socially engaged Buddhism. And I am considering a project working with helping to train staff at uh, one of the big penitentiary penitentiaries here in Maryland on, on helping them learn how to provide end-of-life care. We'll see where that goes. Wow. Well, those are great <laughs> things. Think of the different things that we're all moving into. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now, palliative care clinically and also kind of policy advocacy-wise. Yeah, I, I have the good fortune to have a variety of roles and I love variety. Uh, when I was a new nurse, I was an ER nurse. I think it's one of the reasons why I like palliative care. I like the variety of patient populations and uh, you know the range of issues that people can have. So I am, a couple times a month, I'm practicing as a nurse practitioner on the palliative care team at the University of Maryland Medical Center. And that keeps me really grounded for the other work that I do. Because you know, when you are working with real patients and real colleagues, um, you see how it is when you're writing notes in the EHR or you're reading notes in the EHR. So you know, it, it was my clinical work that drove me into policy because I kept running into the same issues, right? You know, I couldn't persuade patients to give up things like, ooh, palliative chemo to get hospice. Like, why wouldn't palliative chemo be covered by hospice? But it's not, and uh, typically. And so I, I just, that motivated me to, uh, to get into the policy world. And so some of the time I'm a clinician, most of the time I'm um, working for CTAC as their senior regulatory advisor. Well, what does that mean? I, I review re regulations. And it's actually a wonderful opportunity for advocacy because the, the federal government has to put out any proposed regulations for comment. Uh, they give you 60 days to slog through, you know, 1900 page rules. And I, I gladly do that using word search and other things to figure out, okay, is there something in this rule that has to do with serious illness? Is there something in this rule about advanced care planning or hospice or palliative care? Or should there be something in this rule? And then I draft the comments for CTAC. Um, I helped uh, when CAPSI submitted their own comments, I would help them with that. I am involved with uh, developing alternate payment models, working with the Medicare Center for Innovation and with CMS. Um, CTAC had experience developing its own model a few years ago that got all the way through the the vetting process that was available. And then uh, the Medicare Innovation Center said, oh, well, we can't take it as is, but can you modify it? And so CTAC worked with AAHPM to come up with a model that turned into the, the, the um, chassis of the 
primary care first serious illness population model, which is unfortunately on hold. Um, and then I, because of this marketing thing, it's so funny, I was out of marketing for many years and people in the palliative care world started to say, hey, you know something about marketing, right? And I was like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and so I'm uh, working with Tony Bach, Dr. Tony Bach on a project where we've developed messaging principles for palliative care organizations to use, advanced care planning organizations, hospice organizations on how to talk about their, these things to the public. So I love the, like I said, today I had six meetings and they are on six entirely separate topics. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, you have this breadth of experience and you can bring it. And so, I mean, I think one of the things we're wanting our students to know is that they're coming into this, they're adults, they probably have some sort of experience to grow. And, and so, you know, that they're, as everybody finds a role to lead, um, there's not going to be the same journey for everybody. It might depend on where things are at. And I think that, you know, that's really important. I also think, um, you know, it's important to, for people to understand. I, I was chuckling when you were, I was going to ask you how you got through 1900 pages, but the fact that you're using word search makes me feel better because I was- I thinking, don't read all 1900 pages. I, I say, she must be a speed reader. Um, but I think this sense of being aware. So it also means that you're kind of, you know, you must have your ears constantly kind of paying attention to what's the chatter? What are people talking about? What are states talking exactly. about? I must spend, I think it's at least a half an hour, but close to an hour, most days reading industry uh, news, uh, policy alerts, um, things from the Hill, uh, Politico, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, Modern Health, Home Health, Hospice News. I am scanning all of those things. Uh, and then I get all these alerts from CMS and HHS and the Innovation Center. So I have a lot of stuff coming in um, because I'm constantly trying to be up on, so what's going on, what's the latest issue? And you know, now we have a new administration. And I mean, for the first hundred days, there were things like every day from, from the Biden administration. And, and so, you know, even though those are <clears throat> wish lists because they're not real the way legislation or regulation is, they are at least, they, but they're driving the conversation. So, and all of this is set against the backdrop from a policy perspective of trying to turn the battleship from away from the fee-for-service world where we get paid for doing stuff to getting paid in value-based payments, getting paid for outcomes and reforming healthcare. And then, you know, then there was the whole COVID thing, which was challenging both personally as a clinician, because I picked up extra shifts during the pandemic, but then also because Medicare just changed policy overnight. They, they were waiving things and, you know, changing regulations on a temporary basis. It was, it was quite remarkable um, and very exciting, so. So a couple of things on that. I mean, I think we've heard, um, you know, from a, a couple of our other experts, you know, this conversation about the need um, to move from incentive-based to quality, you know, value-based. And, and I think in palliative care, you know, we've had that conversation that we don't want to make the case. We want to show the value, but we have a challenge with um, that are, we're never going to be an extreme moneymaker. I think the other thing is, um, you know, this, this pathway of thinking about innovation as they happen. And so, you know, I wonder, uh, since you brought up the, the COVID part, um, you know, do you feel like there are policies that, or things that happen that are going to help us 
perhaps move palliative care forward that, you know, we didn't expect, we, none of us knew how the pandemic was going to happen. We didn't know what Medicare was going to do. And are, so there are other policies that we sort of need to take advantage of and that the students would need to know, like, when this happens, you, you can't wait, you've got to kind of step into the moment. Well, I, I think the things that come most to mind um, for healthcare in general, but also for palliative care is telehealth. Um, telehealth had been around forever, was quite restricted um, because of concerns for fraud. The patient had to take themselves to a qualified health center mm -hmm. and only there could they connect via telehealth to somebody who was in their state. Um, and only a few things could be done via telehealth and telehealth did not pay as much as a virtual encounter. All of that went out the window um, during the pandemic because you know, like what could be wrong with a fee-for-service system if patients don't come in to see their providers, <laughs> right? They were, we didn't have PPE, a clinic, clinics didn't, a lot of private practices didn't, patients didn't wanna come in. We didn't want them coming in, but there was still care that people needed to get. So it was fascinating. That was one of the fastest things that got waived. Oh, they could be at home. They didn't even have to use video. They could do just the phone. Um, they, we, could, we did advanced care planning over the phone with people. And I mean, those are things that you could not get reimbursed for in the previous world. Now, the changes are temporary. They're only through the end of the pandemic, which I think at the moment is only through the end of this calendar year. And so now the question is, what are we gonna change you know, permanently? And, and that has to be changed by legislation. So there are a lot of bills pending in Congress to do that. Um, I think the other thing that became obvious was, again, fee-for-service, not a great system when, when it required you to do interventions that you could get billed for, as opposed to providing counseling or other information that could help people manage their health when they couldn't come in in person. And so I, I think it was another, another shot in the arm for value-based payment that we really should be focused on outcomes, not the stuff we do. And finally, I think home as the ideal setting for many people with serious illness, just, be, you know, why are we dragging people who are seriously ill into offices, hospitals, ERs, if they don't have to be there or they don't wanna be there. I mean, could we could provide care and there are models in brief parts of the country where people are doing this either virtually or in person at home and, and they are effective. I mean, Sharp uh, uh, Healthcare out in San Diego, they, they have uh, panels of people with serious illness who, who never go to the hospital in the last two years of life. They are able to get services to them at home and keep them home and keep and ant by anticipating symptom management issues, keep the crisis from crises from happening. And it it so it can be done. And now the question is, you know, we have this huge infrastructure in the hospital and everything. I love the hospital, but you know, how are we going to dismantle that and start shifting things to the home? So, you know, we know that it was back in the 60s that we moved healthcare from the community to the hospital for incentive-based care. Here we are 50, 60 years later, it hasn't necessarily worked or it's actually promoted different outcomes. Um, and I think, you know, the other part of that is thinking about, and I'll be curious what you think about this is, you know, we keep saying, okay, the system is broken, we need to change. And yet, when you talk about changing a system, particularly in an academic medical center, you can just feel people pull back and say, 
no, this is the way we've done it. And this is how we get paid. And all. And so, you know, what do you, where do you think that that's going to go? Well, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it's not just in academic medical centers. I, I, inertia is a factor in, in all businesses, right? You know, people uh, spend time and money to establish businesses. And then if the ground rules change, that's, that's very frustrating. It's very distressing. And, you know, I, I think I'm not really sure. I, I, I was going to say that part of me is hopeful because we had this pandemic, we had this reset, we did things differently and it worked out. I mean, like we let nurse practitioners have much more responsibility in places that they typically hadn't had before. And that wasn't a bad thing, right? It kind of, it kind of was a, a weird test of a bunch of things we've always hoped to test. And we did telehealth and that wasn't a disaster. And in fact, it looks like we might want to do more of that. So part of me is hopeful. And then part of me is not so sure that anything is going to change substantially. And I, you know, I think that's a concern many of us have about equity. You know, people are much more focused on it, but then what, you know, we, how do you really change, um, you know, lives so that people from disadvantaged communities are no longer from disadvantaged communities. So I, you know, I, I am not, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I have actually stopped reading, here's a tip. I have stopped reading people's projections about the future because I just decided during the, during the election last year and during the pandemic, no one has any idea what's gonna happen next. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, well, but it's interesting because you're scanning though. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that you must spend a couple hours trying to keep, you know, read all the things. So you're keeping informed. Of what's going on currently. But, you know, people who are saying, you know, what, what will happen in 2023 with healthcare? I, I don't waste my time anymore because I don't think they have any way of knowing. So if you're thinking <laughs> of our students or their future leaders, and yeah. we're wanting them to think about policy. You know, what are some of the challenges that you can see that they would, you know, might have about kind of stepping into that? Well, you know, I, there was a question that you were that you were going to ask me about. What are the things, you know, for it, it, somebody starting in in the palliative care fields? My recommendation. I'll go to them now. My recommendations are they should know something about business. They should know something about finances because this is a business. And I mean, the, the, whether you're not-for-profit or for-profit or, or, or a volunteer group, it's about resources and you have to understand how that works. Um, healthcare is paid in this country by various different payers and they have needs and, and you, those have, they set the agenda for how things go. So I think you need to know about that. And I think you know, need to know about policy because we are not in a highly regulated area, but healthcare is regulated in the United States. What I can do as a nurse practitioner is dependent on regulations in my state. Um, what I can bill for are, are dependent on federal regulations. Um, and how do we change that? We change that through laws or tweaking the regulations we already have. So I, I think it, it's important to be aware of what's going on with these things. I. I when I say what I do and that I'm a policy person, I have colleagues in the hospital who just put their hands up like, oh, I can't be bothered with that. And I'm like, oh, really? Um, so, so, you know, what you can bill for as a provider is dependent on policy. So if you don't care, fine, but it does matter to us. It's not just like a nice to know, it's like undergirds the, the care we can deliver and our institutions can get paid for, which at the end of the day is kind of, 
you know, the bread and butter of, of how this operates. So I'm not saying you need to slog through regs like I do, but you need to at least be aware of what's going on, the conversations in Washington, the conversations in your state, because it's, it's gonna matter. And, and some of those conversations end up being very positive. So some states have changed the regulations. Um, California, several years ago, just required that all managed Medicaid programs had to offer palliative care, home-based palliative care as a benefit. Boom, just a law passed and, and it was done. And now there had, and then there had to be palliative care in all, what, 52 counties in California. Hawaii is looking at that now. Other states are looking at that. So, I mean, if you want, I love being a palliative care provider, but I would like to be in a situation where my program gets paid and I get to be in a part of a full interdisciplinary team. And that's not gonna happen under fee for service. So, so these are some of the creative things that, I think we all need to be aware of if you're a clinician or your administrator um, to figure out how to make some of this stuff happen. Because if you're waiting for somebody in Washington to just decide there needs to be a palliative care benefit, I don't think that's gonna happen this year. You know? And even if they decided they would need legislation to do that, and that's not gonna happen. Not much is happening on the Hill in Washington, right? You, you, you read daily about the, the challenges that the two parties have with getting stuff done. They got things done for the pandemic, but once that's passed, we go back to death, gridlock, deadlock, you know? And so um, not that we shouldn't be working on bills because that's the only way to make some changes, but you, sometimes you have more flexibility on the state level than you do on the federal level. So tell our students some of the things that they should do on a state level. I mean, should they you know, be participating and just getting to know key people? Should they be meeting with insurers? What are some of the things that are important for kind of a policy skill set? And I, I think that's a great question. I'm often asked, well, okay, how do I get into this? I think the easiest way to get into policy on the state level is to be part of a professional association. So I, I got into policy as a member of my state nurse practitioner association because we didn't have independent practice and we were trying to change that. So I was part of the association, they asked me to lobby my state representatives. I did that, I wrote letters. Uh, I was aware of that going on and I mean, it was a long slog, but we finally got independent practice in Maryland and which was amazing. So I already had a sense for what that was like. Um, you know, there are palliative, the palliative care associations, HPNA has chapters. Um, they might be in a city, they might be in a state, they might be in a region. AAHPM has uh, similar structures. So, you know, I think associations are, or, or maybe you're, you're um, not just a palliative care person, but you're interested in, um, you know, your, your discipline. So you're part of a social work group or you're part of a physician group. Um, that those are ways to get involved on the state level with, with policy, because as an average citizen, I mean, you can write to your, your representatives and you can write to the local state regulatory agencies, but I don't know that that's gonna be an effective use of your time. I don't know that that will change anything. Um, and then, you know, the national associations are all working on policy. So your, your membership dollars contribute to that. And, and we, those associations are always looking for members who are interested. So if you're interested in policy and you're a member of HPNA, you should let HPNA know that. So like I'm the state ambassador, one of the state ambassadors for Maryland for HPNA. And that's the volunteer thing, but I keep them posted on what's happening in my state. 
which gives me a reason to kind of pay attention to what's happening in my state with legislation and regulations. And then that's how I learned about what's happening in other states. Well, it sounds like that's kind of a, also a way to kind of learn about the, the field of how to do that. Because I it think- is, you know, Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna go on, the, on, on Capitol Hill in Washington and meet with Nancy Pelosi as a new person. That's just not gonna happen, right? So- Only if you're Marion. <laughs> so just- well, I worked for Nancy Pelosi, but, but I was there as a fellow, yeah. For our students to know, Marion got to work in Nancy Pelosi's office. It's a pretty exciting time, so- um, Awesome, that's great. Can I ask a question, Connie? Yes, sure. Yeah. Yes. So if it was the world according to Marion Grant, what policy changes would you put in place for the future for hospice and palliative care? So I, I think the key thing is we need a better payment structure than fee-for-service. Fee-for-service doesn't pay for half of what we do. So I can get paid for symptom management, but I don't get paid for family education or counseling. I don't get paid for assessing spiritual distress. Um, and the chaplain on my team doesn't get paid for any of that either, right? He gets paid or she gets paid by the hospital, but but not through the, the reimbursement mechanism. So I... A value-based payment arrangements would pay for a fuller interdisciplinary team, and they would pay for the additional things that Medicare fee-for-service doesn't pay for that are important in palliative care, uh, like providing emotion support or spiritual support or family caregiver, you know, uh, information. What are your thoughts um, about CMS putting all the responsibility for procurement of the medications on the hospice, even if some of those medications are medically futile? Well, you know, this is this is where it gets this is where it gets tricky. Um, I think it's nice to be able to tell patients when I see them clinically that that if they opt for hospice, that all of their medications will be covered. Um, but but then it's the tricky part of were they on the right medications to begin with? Um, you know, to de-prescribe people off of non-helpful uh, anti-dementia medication, I, I try to do that regularly. It is not easy to do, right? People are clinging to those things like, no, 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 she'll become demented if we stop them. I'm like, she already is. And it's, <laughs> you know, um, so I, I am not focused specifically on hospice regulations. Um, CTAC is a very broad coalition. So I am aware of hospice regulations, but we are not in the weeds the way NHPCO uh, would be um, in, in some of those nuances. Um, so, you know, pay, payment is, is, and then the other thing that's related to policy is metrics. So if you're going to pay for value, you have to agree on what, how you will determine what is value. What, what are the outcomes you will measure? And the easy one to measure, easiest ones to measure are claims-based uh, outcomes, you know, hospitalizations, utilization, ER visits. Um, but that is not, those aren't, you know, Palliative care is much more holistic than that, but but we don't have a lot of measures. And so e even if the world tomorrow said, you know what, we're shifting entirely and, and the government forces everybody into uh, value-based payment arrangements, which would involve them taking financial risk, both upside and downside, which is what scares providers. And I totally get that. Um, for palliative care, the challenge would be we have like 20 measures, maybe 23 now. Um, it, not quite enough to get a robust sense for what it is we, we do, but getting measures through the development and vetting process is a multi-year process as well. So there's nothing fast in, in federal policy. Yeah. 
And we should say for the students, um, Marion is on the National Quality Forum uh, Geriatric and Palliative Care Group. Um, and I actually served on the National Quality for um, Clinician Work Group and Post-Acute Care, Long-Term Care Group, which were mandated by the Affordable Care Act in terms of thinking about quality. But again, um, to have a measure be reviewed, as Marian reminded me the other day, um, it's expensive. You really have to have a team and it will be picked apart several times before it's finally approved. So you have to be persistent and really have the financial support to do that. So, you know, as you think about some of this though, what is it that keeps you up at night in terms of policy? Well, I mean, Diane Meyer persuaded me that we all should be worried about anybody right now saying that they provide palliative care services because there aren't regs. No one, you can't just say I'm a hospice. Um, there are Medicare federal regulations, which Lynn is quite familiar with. <laughs> Anyone who works in hospice knows, I mean, you've got conditions of participation. You've got like 400 specific things you have to do to be able to, take, to get paid by Medicare for hospice. Now, somebody else might pay you and you run Joe's hospice and you don't do those things, but that's pretty unusual. Um, so, you know, I, we don't have regulations that, that force people to be certified in palliative care. That's something we're working with payers to try to have them require. Um, and, you know, but I don't think we're quite ready tomorrow to, to decide what those regulations would look like. Hospice took many years, was a demonstration project, an experiment, and only over time did regulations get written. So it's, it's gonna take palliative care a, a little while longer. Well, I think, you know, um, it's interesting that you said that because, I mean, one, when we talked to Steve Connor and, um, and Judy Ludperson, um, you know, there's a lot of mixed feelings about whether the hospice Medicare benefit was good or bad, right? Because exactly. Because this minimum criteria. And I think we do have the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care Clinical Practice Guidelines, which are high aspirations and most programs don't meet those. On the other hand, I mean, I think it's a start for us of a platform, but I think, you know, that's the interesting part when you talk about that. When you think about insurers, you know, then I think it's sort of saying, okay, to them, how do we help them decide, like, are they doing it by, it's a program specialty certification. So whether it's hospital-based community, and we, we knew now with um, the different um, entities, you know, it can be in the community, hospice, home health, practice, uh, physician practice, community, whatever. So I think we have the ability for people to be creative. Or is it by percentage of the different disciplines to have, um, certification. So first nursing medicine, but then the challenge is you might not have it in pharmacy, you know, social work has just started, uh, chaplaincy, you know, so there, so even that gets kind of interesting. So when I, you, you talk about, the well, I mean, and do you certify the program? Do you cer certify the clinicians in the program? Those are two separate things and you might need to do a combination of both. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I think the interesting part is. And then there's a whole cost part, right? Because then when you look at equitably, you, some of these smaller programs can't afford to do the ongoing part of that. Well, and I mean, you know, there's not a lot of great evidence that certification ensures quality either. Oh, by the way. So, I mean, there are, there are a number of papers about the Joint Commission and hospitals that that is not necessarily guaranteed that you get quality care just because they're Joint Commission certified. 
So, and I mean, I, as a, this is again, where being a clinician is such an interesting thing as a policy person. I am at my hospital when we jump through the hoops when the joint commission comes, right? And, um, you know, we have people scrubbing with toothbrushes at the corner of the hallways. And I'm thinking, okay, that looks really good today, but that is not the way this, this hallway normally looks. And maybe it doesn't have to be clean like that, but joint commission, you know, so the drills are a little bit, they're a little bit Wow. Well, I think that the one thing that I mean, I do think there is some evidence that if discipline specific certification does improve practice, right? So we do know that part. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a whole financial piece um, to it. And it's, it's a challenge because, um, you know, I think we're trying to look at something as a measure. Yeah, something. <laughs> anything, anything. You know, I think the other challenge is there are never gonna be enough palliative care people to meet all the needs. So we say, okay, so then we'll, we'll focus on primary palliative care, right? Which is where you try to persuade oncologists and cardiology people and nephrologists that they should incorporate these skills. But you know, I have to say just between us, that's always struck me as being a little crazy because I mean, how do you go into a cardiologist and say, oh, you've been a cardiologist for 20 years but I need to show you something you don't do that your patients need. And it's true, but I, you know, as a marketing person, I'm like, I just don't know how you effectively persuade people in these other specialties that they have, that they have needed skills. Now the pandemic helped a little bit because I think all of a sudden everyone was like, oh my God, I don't know how to manage breathlessness if I can't put everyone on a ventilator. Or I don't know how to have a goals of care conversation and I don't have room in my ER for everybody. So we have to, you know, so there was a recognition of that. But now that the crisis is ebbing, I'm not sure that there'll be an ongoing recognition that they have, that they have the opportunity to pick up new skills, you know? Interesting. Lynn, do you have a comment? No. <laughs> I'm a big fan of primary palliative care skills in every professional school. Right. Well, and I think maybe what Marianne is saying is that it's easier if we start it yes. for the new people. It's harder when people are mid-career, you know, I agree. Yeah. And, um, and you're right, getting people to sort of understand that it's actually part of good care, that that's the impetus rather than, oh my God, you're making me do one more thing, right? I mean, I, I do see that in my, in my, in my hospital as a teaching center and, you know, people who've had palliative care as medical students, or as residents now come in as fellows, they're like, of course I'm calling you guys, right? But they work with attendings and section heads who are like, no. So, I mean, it's going to take a long time to work you know, new people with that perspective through the system. I think what will help though is, is just to focus on, this is not working for anybody. And, and I think even oncologists and cardiologists would say they don't feel great about the care they're providing either. And how do we get this to be better? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it also goes back to this expectation. And, um, you know, I think in terms of clinics right now, whether it's an outpatient ambulatory or really in the community, you know, how, how we book patients right now is we're saying you get 10 or 15 minutes, right? Well, if you have a 15 minute appointment, the first five is, you know, running through blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Get somebody's attention. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I, I use those opportunities sometimes when I'm a patient to kind of say, okay, let me sit in the seat about what does it feel like, right? And 
I have, I have, you know, lovely caregivers and noticing how much time they're actually talking to me versus filling in that questionnaire versus what's being triggered by what I haven't done that they have to do that. And so my problem becomes, and it's, it's not a very satisfying experience. I mean, you know, I'm a healthcare provider, but it's like, I don't, sort of feel the need unless it's an emergency because I don't feel like there's that much that I glean from it, right? But it makes me think about my own practice. So, you know, this is, and this might just be showing my philosophy. I sort of refuse to go as a quality measure into a patient with any sort of electronic advice. I'm yeah, still at where I am talking to that patient and family. Um, if I have to do a medication part, I will sort of be honest about it. And that's when I might have a computer and say, let's talk about this. But otherwise, you know, I'm taking notes so that they know that I'm really paying attention. Now, the onus is on me, um, which is why we had somebody talk about, you know, they didn't like charting. On the other hand, I like templates because I know I've done a lot and the template will help me fill it in because I haven't done it while I've done it. Do you know what I mean? Well, and I tell you, I mean, I just had this realization the other day. So now our notes are available to patients. Um, and I think that is going to be, I, I saw a patient recently, I did a consult. There were three notes from the ER about this person. And in each note, he had a different kind of metastatic cancer. It varied from prostate to lung to pancreatic. It was prostate actually. And I thought, oh my God, if the family asks for the chart and sees what I just saw, we look like idiots, right? So I, I mean, I wonder if the note thing is going to weirdly get itself worked out when people really start scanning what we're actually saying and saying, this is, this is garbage. What are you guys talking about? Right. Well, a separate issue. Well, that's that was a policy. That was a policy, policy change. Right. That's what I was going to say. It could be another policy part that we decided to have open access. Um, so I'm just thinking, you know, are there any other, so, you know, these are students, we want them to be leading the future. They are going to be leading the future. They've made this investment. Any other thoughts or comments you would have to them in either policy or anything else that you think would be important for them to know as a leader? And well, I, I, I try, I, I am passionate about the work that I do. I, I believe this is important where this is the kind of care I went to nursing school to do palliative care. So uh, you have to be, um, you have to be persistent. You have to be uh, effective. You can't just be morally uh, righteous. <laughs> you have to, you have to persuade people. Uh, and so advocacy isn't just about you transmitting. You have to be in the receiving mode at the same time, but I, I am not easily daunted. Uh, and I think that that is an important thing. And I know that neither of you are easily daunted either. And that is the only way you make it through um, a long career where you start to be effective because nothing can be done quickly and nothing can be done just by you, by yourself. Um, you, you have to be able to work and, and persuade and motivate and cajole others to get things done and work as a group to get things done. And, and that's my hope is that you know, that these young leaders are not on their own, that they're part of associations and institutions and collaborations that are getting things done as a group because that is the only way uh, we affect change, certainly on the policy sphere. If, you know, if, if you try to persuade Congress of something, you have to be a, a unified front. Hmm. You know, if, if four people come to the office and talk about the, a bill four different ways and have four different points of view, th their lives are complicated. They're just gonna say, forget this one, you know? 
So. Well, that's important. I mean, I think, you know, it, it speaks to us um, collaboration that we may disagree, but we do need to put forth a united front, even with the patients, right? Like we yeah, yeah. mean, but we've got to have that one voice. Um, and I think persistence is kind of what you've said. Um, and, yep. I, and I think that that's, um, I think it's always important to remember those, those common themes. So Lynn, anything else you want to add or make a comment about? No, that's great advice, Dr. Grant. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for asking me. And look, students, best wishes to you um, onward. And I am available if you uh, have questions or comments or want to know more about policy. I am always happy to talk to people about that because I don't plan to do this forever. And so we will, we will need young recruits or new recruits. To take care of us when we're old, right? <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much. much. Yes. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.